quick one. If you can hit follow or subscribe to this podcast, that really helps me track new listeners. Cheers. This week on the podcast, I welcome Oliver Yonchev, co-founder and CEO of Flight Story. Now, Flight Story aims to help great companies grow and build resilient retailer investor communities. And it's also one of the companies that Stephen Bartlett has invested in. So ever since learning about them, I've wanted to speak with Oliver about what they do, what they know about retail investors, but also understand his background and journey towards becoming both a founder and a CEO. And I was also keen to understand Oliver's own personal relationship with investing and money. Now, as always, the Wealth Journal should not be considered as financial advice, and anything myself or Oliver discuss is purely for educational and entertainment purposes. We don't make any investment recommendations. We don't recommend anything to buy or sell or anything like that. If you're thinking about investing, I would highly recommend that you first do your own research or better yet, speak to a financial advisor or investment professional. Now with that out of the way, let's get cracking. So Oliver, welcome to the Wealth Journal podcast. It's great to have you. Jay, great to be here. Excellent. Now, I think I'm going to jump around a little bit in this episode uh, because I'd love to talk to you about Flight Story. But first, it'd be great if you could give me a bit of an introduction into who you are and your background sort of leading up until Flight Story. Oh, wow. Loaded question. Um, So uh, I'm a delusional optimist, failed indie rocker, aspiring football player that never made it, all those kind of dream chaser in my early years. Um, I'll probably skip forward to to a lot of my career, but um, uh, previously I was managing director for a business called Social Chain, which is a leading social media marketing services and e-commerce group. Um, I was part of that business through, you know, rapid growth of being this small UK startup to a uh, 650 million turnover publicly listed business. And that was accelerated through a five-year process. Um, If I look back at where I've spent a lot of my time, it's really been the last decade of helping leading brands understand the role of digital and social media and modern communication dynamics and last year we set up a business at the back end of the year called flight story um, and with flight story uh, to put simply we offer modern investor communication solutions and um, a big part of our remit is helping public companies distill their value out to the world and you will be surprised how many companies are not great at telling the world clearly and concisely why they exist and what they do and they're certainly not great at doing it uh, to investors. Um, and our focus is very much on, on retail investor communication as a, as a starting place. But our future ambitions is to um, bridge the gap between institutional and look at investing solutions more broadly. Amazing. And what was it about the retail investor market or this sort of idea that you had that captured you to sort of set up this company? Was it a passion of yours or...? an idea you had? Yeah, so a number of things. Uh, I've been a retail investor since I started my retail investing journey. At the uh, About a month after the, the start of the last recession, right? I remember when the world went into chaos, um, the financial institutions were seemingly collapsing around me. I thought, great time 
to discover Warren Buffett <laughs> and <laughs> start my investing journey. Fortunately for me, um, I couldn't pick a loser at that time. I really started my journey uh, and I went through the, the sort of cycles that retail investors go through of thinking you're great at something and making lots of mistakes and, and learning. So my background wasn't, I've always had a keen interest in investing in, in, in many facets, whether that's property, equities or other, right? Um, but when I speak specifically about flight story, um, I would be remiss if I didn't start with the opportunity. Um, you hear a lot about the retail movement. You hear kind of retail being described as a movement, and that's described as a movement because it's true. And when you look at the data, retail trading hit a, a peak at the back end of last year. Um, and to put it into context, retail trade accounts in terms of volume for more than mutual and hedge funds combined in sort of total global volume. And if you think of retail, it's always been a part of the financial ecosystem. Um, it's actually becoming an increasingly important part. Um, and a lot of people always ask why, what, what's led to this seemingly change? And we could speak to COVID, we could speak to lots of things, right? But I think there's three things that I think are particularly important. And Number one being technology and access, specifically mobile access. I, I genuinely think it's profound that I have, you know, six apps on my phone that allow me to trade uh, and make investments in one form or another, largely for free, right? So that to me is a, it really does pave the way for the retail movement. You've got a lot of innovation in finance and technology more broadly. Um, crypto. Right. When you look at crypto and the, the momentum and the amount of young people that have been introduced to investing through the vehicle that is crypto, it really is profound. And as a consequence of that, you know, the dynamics and the investor base and the likes and dislikes and behaviors all start to change. And then specifically speaking to a lot of my career, you know, like most industries, everything is being charged by social media. Um, and we always describe social media as kind of uh, this one big, all-encompassing thing. But social media is many things. There are tens of platforms, all with different algorithmic factors, all with um, cultures and subcultures that exist within these ecosystems. And what we've seen more broadly in social media is a real shift from broadcast-based platforms, the Facebooks, the Instagrams of the world, where you share a message and you connect with people through to community-based platforms that are enriched. And this is the rise of forums like Reddit, but also closed and dark social like Telegram and Discord and these environments that you know are thriving with rich investor conversation. So if you think of all these things, the kind of consequence of all these macro factors conflating you have a, a new type of investor, a lot of them being introduced. There's one statistic that's really profound to me. So prior to 2021, 6%, less than 6% of new entrants to market were under the age of 30. Post-2021, over 23% of new entrants to market were under the age of 30. That is profound. And if you think of the consequence of um, you know, the diversity the naivety often, and I'm, I'll go into that because we often kind of think of the young investor as naive. I, I don't always buy that, but um, it's good for the headlines, right? But if you just think of that, those factors more broadly, and then you consider we're all in a new environment, businesses are trading in a new environment, and for the longest time, the financial industry hasn't traded in a new environment, and it now is, 
Um, I don't think the, the structures that support public companies are adequate. I think investor relations hasn't changed in decades more broadly and needs to. Um, and that's what we're hoping and, and, and our core mission is to do, is to create some disruption, um, but also add value to a, to a shifting landscape. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And I guess there's much more information out there as well for investors of today than what there has been in the past. Like you'd usually have to go to speak to a financial advisor or your local bank and they'd help you probably just set up a, at best a stocks and shares ISA or something like that. Whereas now the retail investor, like you said, can download an app on the phone and pretty much get started in minutes, which is like you said, the shift in technology. When it comes to investor relations though, like I guess what you've alluded to there, you're right, that hasn't really moved on. It's often an annual report, quarterly updates, that sort of drumbeat. Is your company looking to, to shift that and help organizations almost appeal to the, the new investor that's, that's coming through and is a bit more in, information hungry? Yeah, I'll probably go back a step, actually, because I think it's worth looking at the kind of archetype of a retail investor. So we, I, I mentioned there are a lot of change, a lot of new investors, right? Um, but the retail investors are a really broad spectrum. It's, you know, some people are incredibly technical, you know, ex, ex-bankers, um, people that have been doing this a long time, all the way through to young, impressionable, hype-led, degen-type investor that is there to you know make the make the quick book. Describing retail as this all-encompassing one thing is almost a mistake, right? Um, and when you think of investor relations, investor relations broadly is geared to servicing the top fifty shareholders of public companies, because historically the investor bases and you know um, and I say historically, um, even today, right? Uh, institutional. Uh, support is is largely dictating market dynamics right but what is really prominent and when you look at the data is that retail has an influence a surprising influence and I started to learn this maybe I'm going to go back maybe six years ago when I went to my first capital day to present uh, for a big fashion retailer Um, I was gobsmacked I was there to talk about digital transformation and the role that we played within this organization and I was gobsmacked by the amount of attention that was played to social metrics. At the time, it was follower growth. You know, how much traffic is the website getting? These real sort of basics of a sort of a digital footprint. And what that sh- said to me is the industry pays a lot of attention to social dynamics as an indicator of business success, direction of travel for for company, particularly digital companies, e-commerce and technology and such and and others, right? And if you think of the modern dynamics now, the retail investor, um, uh, the worlds are all conflating. The retail investor institutions, we're all looking at the same information, operating in similar environments, communicating in similar environments. So consequentially, this idea to your point of the investor relations calendar that is annual report, we gear up for this moment, we share a set of guidance, we try and manage the expectations, then we update on a quarterly basis. Um, that feels inadequate, right? And what retail are craving for? People, if I, I talked a lot about kind of retail archetypes changing, um, investor bases by large now, if you think they, I would say, um, 
investor bases have different motivations, particularly when you look at the data, right? Everybody has a singular objective of, of uh, discovering opportunity, right? That's kind of a, a, the corner. So that's almost the given of investing. But there are other motivational factors. A lot of investors back the future. A lot of investors make ethical investing decisions, right? So this idea, again, that the only thing that matters is, is core fundamentals, particularly on certain companies that rely a lot more on the story. Take some of the, the companies that are really future-facing. And I would say, you know, let's say the spectrum of technical investor through to romantic investor. Certainly on that end, they, they back companies that communicate well. And rearing your head once a quarter and doing uh, a roadshow and engaging with investors every three months is probably not enough. One of my my key things that I wanted to understand is that how do how do firms better engage with investors going forward than in sort of today's investor environment? What tools are available for them to use? And could you give any examples of good practice versus bad practice? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I think it's it's probably worth it's probably worth saying, um, you know, good practice for me. I'm going to talk in, in kind of a macro sense. Yeah. Um, I think businesses should, a good starting place is being really transparent, you know, uh, really transparent in, um, and this is a broader shift towards, if you think about organizations, you know, when you say something to the world, people then take that information and decide whether they like it or they don't. So, a foundational principle, you hear it a lot in marketing, is being authentic and transparent. I think the same applies for um, the, the for capital markets more broadly, right? Um, and as a, I'm going to say, a, blo- a, a typically a black box industry that doesn't like to uh, let you see the inner workings, um, I think that's a quite a big shift that companies have to transform how they think, right? Um I think the other piece then is good practices to have people that are accountable for this stuff. So if you look at the investor relations industry more broadly, and you have different dynamics in the UK to the US, but um, take a sort of micro to small to mid cap business in the UK, investor relations could sit with a corporate comms firm, it could sit with a CEO, it could sit with a finance team. Um, and if we if we all can sort of uh, recognize that the communication aspect of investor relations is, is a critical component, distributing your news, distributing your message, crafting your story, the fundamental story, but also the visionary story. Um, if those things are important, you know, having investor relations sit in silo in, in certain sections of a company is probably inadequate, right? So one of the things that we try and do is, is really bridge that gap between modern comms and marketing because most businesses invest quite heavily in marketing and they have all the vehicles the tools and the channels to be more effective um however they're not utilizing what they already have right particularly in um say more complex organizations so i think good practice is to have someone accountable and what that can mean is bringing in outside parties hiring someone that is accountable for ir and again this is very this is very um common practice within um, US economies, right? The IR industry is much more established in many. There are a lot more businesses. There are a lot more innovation in the space. But in the UK, it doesn't feel like we've matured in the same way. I think that's a good starting place. Um, And then other things is recognizing that um, 
as much as as much as uh, you as an organization um, think the world erodes around you, it often doesn't, and we all do it. We're, you know, we're all somewhat self-serving, and we all think people care about us more than they actually do, right? So I, I think it's really important to, in order to get people to care, you need to capture people's attention. And I think the companies that do that, they put they're not only transparent, they're not only focused and accountable, but they put a lot of effort. And when I say effort and resource, I don't, don't mean capital investment. I mean resources in time into focusing on their communication. And um, I think that's a good starting place for a company. Um, and from there, you can sort of build and reiterate to better outcomes. I think and it's often a bit of a buzzword at the moment. Certainly for, for many organizations, whether it's setting up a new business or um, an NFT project or crypto or anything like that, Building communities seems to be just the the sort of everyone seems to talk about it. Uh, I think you've actually mentioned about the importance of communities as well when it comes to having a relationship with your investor community. Is there any sort of recipe or sort of silver bullet for building an effective community, whether that's for investors or just anybody who's maybe listening to this podcast, setting up their own business? What advice would you give them? Yeah, I, I'm going to be really boring and say there is no silver bullet to, uh, you know. Commu- <laughs> I thought, saying, you might, saying, <laughs> thought you might say that. <laughs> no, you know, um, the idea of a, a silver bullet on a this really consequential thing, it's like in in a marketing context, you'd have to say, you'd often speak about the idea of a brand being important. Let's build a brand. Building a brand requires a lot of investment. It requires resource. It requires consistency. Um, there are a lot of factors that go into building a brand, right? The same can be said for community. The idea of uh, what I would say is a good starting place. Communities are about building deep relationships, not wide. And we, we've we come from an age of where scale has always been the thing that companies chase. And, and our, the digital landscapes and the platforms that we operate under, um, they've largely driven that. It became trivialized that we could reach millions of people with a message. It really did become almost commoditized. And if you think in a, an age where everyone has so much choice, we're all exposed to so much noise, the idea of going deeper and building community is, is really important. Um, so if I was to give some top tips, the first one always has to start with, um, why are you doing this? <laughs> why do you want a community, right? Because communities, they're living, breathing things, they're people, <laughs> They're people. So if you want a community, they need to be nurtured, they need to be serviced, they need to be invested in, right? So if you want to if you want to build a community, ask yourself why. If you believe it can add value to your organization and you're going to embark on that, the three key fundamentals, I believe, are accountability, investment, and consistency. I say accountability is have someone or an outside party responsible for community building, nurturing. Um, I read a thread uh, a couple of months ago about a... Uh, that spoke to kind of critical jobs of the future that don't exist yet. And one of those threads talked heavily about this idea of a community designer. This is a person in the same way you would have a a UX designer, someone that would orchestrate the experience. Having someone that orchestrates the community experience is probably a job of the future, right? And we think of community in a marketing context, but certainly in an investor-based context as well. So, I think a good starting place is accountability. The next is investment. And when I say investment, I don't mean just financial. I also mean time. 
And then the last piece is consistency. The problem with community, this idea that you can go from zero to hero overnight is redundant. The only way you go from zero to hero overnight is um, through hacky tactics that are short-lived and don't serve sustainable long-term objectives. So if you, there are silver bullets that exist. They're not compliant silver bullets that exist. So really, it's about doing the right things over a sustained period of time. And the right things are caring, understanding your audiences, investing time in them, over-communicating with them, being transparent. I, I, and again, it's, it, feels, it feels such a, you're overlaying such a human principles <laughs> over something that we almost create as a, a sort of fugazi art of community building. <laughs> I'm going to be making a few notes on this for the podcast. <laughs> um, when I think of some companies that that do this quite well, and it it might be an obvious example, but my mind tends to go to to Elon Musk and and Tesla because for him he's got a very and if you look at some of his other companies as well, such as SpaceX, he's he's got a very strong why with probably both of them companies. SpaceX he wants to colonize mars and then tesla obviously ambitions for a more sustainable future he's also got that element of reputational risk and skin in the game because his name is so prominent towards them two companies he's very transparent and the way he communicates to the retail investor is is a lot through twitter and in a format that they i and probably most other people can understand is Tesla the sort of company that you think or Elon Musk does it quite well, or is that too much of an obvious example? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. So Elon, for me, uh, is is a revolutionary in every sense of the word. And um, but for that exact reason, I think Elon is a really bad example. I often cite Elon as kind of the mecca of um, you know uh, example of where community drives unthinkable results whether it relates to a company valuation, whether it, you know, but having a playbook built around the things that Elon does, I actually think it undermines the true power of community because it's very easy to be dismissive because it's not realistic that everyone's going to be as brave and outrageous and is trying to, you know, send people to space and create a sustainable revolution and all the many wild and wonderful things that Elon is doing, right? So I actually think it trivializes a little bit of the movement, but there is a lot to learn from Elon. So for me, I, I, I think what Elon does do correct is all the things that you said. I think the idea that he speaks the internet very fluently, he is transparent as a leader, Um. And some would argue against that. But what he does understand is that, um, and I think underpinning all this is, what he does understand is he appreciates the power of community and he, he, he acts accordingly as a result of that. So I think a lot of Tesla's success is actually just built on that foundational appreciation of what community actually means and what it can do for a, for a business. Yeah. I guess when it comes to some of the things Elon has done in the past, I have actually landed him in hot water because and my, my interpretation of investor relations and why it previously was quite rigid was that it might have to form some form of regulatory consistency. And with him sometimes tweeting about how he had funding secured to take Tesla private and things like that, he ended up having, you know, getting 
a, a serious fine from the SEC. How do you balance getting the right information across in the right way that doesn't sort of impact the regulatory environment? Yeah, great, great question. And look, um, Elon is a troll in every sense of the world. The guy renamed his, he filed his CEO under SEC filing as the master of coin, right? He changed his net, like he, these things aren't serious business endeavors. Of course, he's doing it for fun. And it speaks to why <laughs> the online world and subsequently the real world has love and admiration and why he's one of the most followed people in the world as an entrepreneur and such. He's changed. He's paved the way for thinking about entrepreneurship in a different way. He's absolutely done that. But to your point around investor relations being uh, governed under strict compliance, that's really important. You know, um, misleading people around anything is not a good thing. So having really tight regulation around what you can and can't say is very important. Um, I think one of the things that we look at with an organization is, on one hand, we know what great marketing is, great communication is, you know, relevant, factual stories framed in the right way, distributed in the right environments, and done at a consistent level at scale. Like that's the kind of overarching framework of great communication today online. Um, what you then have is regulation of what you can and can't do. Um, and actually, one of the first things we do when we onboard with a business is we try and create a framework of governance. So we know, depending on which, uh, which territory or what stage of your capital markets journey, there's different nuanced laws that are associated. But generally speaking, the things that companies have to think about is, is what you're saying factual? Are there appropriate disclosures, forward-looking statements, if you are having, uh, presenting new information or using media partnerships and such? And have you met filing requirements, right? So these are the frameworks. And if you think of management teams, particularly, say, the first time they're going public, a lot of them, for a lot of management teams, this is a new process. So your natural disposition is to listen to exactly what you can and can't do. And if you think by nature, law and compliance and legal counsel, their obligation is to avoid all risk, right? And saying something that is more subjective is considered a risk, right? So it can be rooted in facts, but the framing of it can often be very subjective. So it's a very important that companies, in order to achieve that utopia of great marketing, relevant, agile, at scale, all of those things, in order to achieve that, you need to have frameworks in place. And what we typically do is we work with internal legal counsel or outside counsel. We have clear boundaries on what they can and can't do. We have this as safe territory. Often, um, if you think of the investor discovery base, we always think about new information. But for a lot of investors, discovering new companies that are doing interesting things is really exciting. Retail love to discover companies that are doing something revolutionary, right, or have great fundamentals. So you actually have historic information that's really valuable that can be resurfaced at the right times. So it's really important that you have a safe criteria, you have an internal sign-off process that's governed, and then you have clear no's. And the clear no's are always obvious. You know, don't be misleading. <laughs> don't have the wrong associations. Uh, that's kind of no, but this this area in the middle and what happens in investor relations typically right now is it's governed all in that section. 
So what you end up with is factual reporting, and that's it. Yep. But that really, it's important when I said, you know, what's the, the, the most effective way? It's about relevance and crafting of story and presenting factual information in the right way. Um, and actually, most companies don't get that far because they don't have the foundational systems and processes in place to allow them to be effective. Can you tell me a little bit about Flight Deck? Because I've heard you talk about this a couple of times. I've been, I've been intrigued to know what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Flight Deck is um, some attribution technology that we've built. And we built this out of uh, operating blind. So when we first started the process of building Flight Story, we were working with partners um, and we were delivering activity and we were operating on hypothesis. Um, what we had to do is really measure the impact of our work. We looked to the available tools that were in market, and there wasn't any tools that could accurately predict or help us link online activity to market outcomes. So that led us on a path of first understanding the different dynamics. Secondly, is this a problem that we could solve? And could we start to build an attribution model that links anything you do online um, through to a leading indicator of interest and consequently action from a investor. So some of the things, how we started this process, we started some rudimentary hypothesis that was very much about, okay, um, you know, if someone tweets about you as an investor, if someone talks about you in a Reddit forum, if someone searches your share price on Google, first and foremost, what value or what intent is there um, towards purchasing your stock positively or negatively, right? So first we had to start to give a weighting to different online inputs. Then we had to overlay um, interest. And, you know, there's a real blind spot for most organizations of um, could we correlate, um, you know, lots of social conversation, lots of online activity, with leading indicate. Leading is a really important part of this because consequentially, if news breaks and action in market happens, it stimulates conversation online. So it was very important for us to establish what's leading and what's not leading, what's consequential and what's a leading indicator. Um, so we started then to develop our own algorithm that looked at the inputs we had available to us with our partners. We started then to scale that across multiple sectors and different markets. We then started to develop machine learning to underpin this, to ensure that we could evolve the, um, our software capabilities. And we're actually in the phase now where we will have our V2 version of the product, which started off again as a hypothesis to a, a, uh, a pretty strong indicator for companies of what online factors are um, leading to better or worse market outcomes and how a company can use this from investor relations standpoint it means they can focus they can be more intentional they can know which partnerships are fruitful they can start to now not only speculate in a blind manner but actually operate with uh, a degree of certainty in their investments as it relates to their media choices their channel choices and such and is there anything that sort of surprised you 
as you've built Flight Deck and you've collated all this data or even surprised some of your uh, clients of like, wow, we just didn't know that. I didn't understand that at all until you shared that with us. Yeah, I, I think the probably the biggest surprise um, for us and uh, subsequently our, our partners has been um, how influential the community is on trading volume. And I, the reason I say trading volume because trading volume can be good or bad, right? So what you will often see is a very clear correlation between online activity and trading volume. And I think if you look to stimulate positive activity online, um, you can draw your own conclusions of how you can achieve more successful outcomes for your share price. Yeah. And is that is that the goal of your partners, really, to try and encourage more investment into their business, help increase the share price, or is it more just to build just a better a better community of investors? Yeah, I think it's there's two parts to this. There are a lot of organizations that are doing amazing things. A part of our sort of central mission is we talk about helping great companies. There are so many great companies that fall short because of their inability to communicate effectively what they do. So they're not getting the credit they deserve from the shareholder base. So part of what we do is helping companies get the visibility whether investors are motivated by them or not, that comes down to business fundamentals. Yeah. What they do, how they operate, you know, their financial trajectory. So very much uh, our role in this is really about them helping them communicate better. The outcomes of that should be consequentially that they have more interest that should lead to better share outcomes. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take a bit of a letter now with the with the questions and just focus on on you a little bit more. So tell me about life. I'll go back a step. So this podcast is about building wealth. And I think one of the, one ways people can do that is through improving your know, investing and uh, building their asset column and things like that. Another good way of building wealth is by starting a business, you know, building your wealth that way. You're a co-founder of a company. Tell me a little bit about life as a co-founder how have you how have you found it sort of taking that step from working for you know a large company to now almost going on your own i know you're a co-founder but how's that been yeah you know what the transition hasn't been too different right so um when i joined social chain it was a team of about 20 people and um i believe it or not at 26 years old was one of the more experienced heads in the room right one of the older heads in the room. Um, it was a very youthful business <laughs> in every sense of the word, right? So um, I, I'd actually, it was almost a boot camp for your own entrepreneurial ventures. And when I reflect a lot on my time, I, I've, I think most people have A, an ambition to do something entrepreneurial um, and B, have actually taken steps to, to um, partake on entrepreneurial endeavors more broadly. So my roots were very much, I used to be in a, a band. I played drums. That was prior to, you know, while I was studying and such. Um, and that was quite successful, right? I was the manager of the band. We ended up getting a record deal and all those things. So I'd always been quite entrepreneurial through that process, but I didn't know it. I followed quite a safe route. Um, I think the the thing that holds people back from entrepreneurial endeavors is 
all the human characteristics that we all share insecurities you know confidence fear feels like a risk right um and what the the vehicle of social chain allowed me to do in going through that process was understanding that it's really enjoyable it's challenging you learn a lot the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial journey is thoroughly enjoyable and often i think the overriding narrative today in in from entrepreneurs is it feels good to say how difficult entrepreneurship is like you're going to have sleepless nights you're going to do it i have to all those things are somewhat true right at times yeah. um but it's actually a wonderful thing you learn a lot and i don't think entrepreneurship's for everybody but i think if you've got certain natural inclinations uh, and for me coming from a larger uh having gone through the rapid growth and prior to that i worked for one of the uh, europe's largest media companies so i i've always been in large organizations and actually every experience you have you steal a piece of that experience and you bring it into your next thing so for me personally the transition what didn't feel like much of a transition we achieved a lot through social chain with little experience um a lot of delusional optimism and some really good values and people around us working around this kind of shared mission um and in starting flight story um i have a bit of experience we have a bit of a platform uh a bit more resource all of the things that you think should allow you to um be more effective so the the kind of hesitations and the fears and those things they all disappear and what's it like as a ceo you know day to day you've got to make decisions you're responsible for people as well how have you how have you found that i think a lot of people might think oh, i'd love to be a ceo i'm in charge but what's it like in reality yeah the great stuff is the independence right you march your own beat and you operate your own schedule um the stuff that's less positive right it can be a lonely place there's nowhere to turn uh, often the book stops with you the only thing in most businesses is uncertainty <laughs> you know you can often go from meteoric highs to um the tectonic plates of your business and life being disrupted overnight um and i think as a, a consequence i think if you you have to have quite a strong mental resolve to do that but i think the upside of leading a business is the far outweighs any of the downsides a the potential sort of remuneration upside of if you lead a company to great success you are disproportionately rewarded i think that's obviously a big motivation i think the credit ceos get way more credit than they deserve a lot of the time um businesses are a collection of people and the ceo's job is often to motivate great people um give them the tools to be effective and give them the frameworks and allow them to go be great and then you get all the credit right so like there there are advantages in that sense and then i i suppose the third thing is you get to see your ideas and vision manifest it's really interesting particularly in in what we're trying to do we're walking an unwalked path so that's really exciting that's really fulfilling um and the idea that you know this we can see ideas and visions start to come to peace in life and you always have those zoom out moments we've 
we publicly launched in December last year. I zoom out of what we've achieved in the last six months, and it really is catastrophic. You know, we've we've got three officers now, a team of almost 50 people. We've made our first acquisition. You know, we've got a phenomenal client base. We've got a lot of systems. So I, I think of what's been achieved in a six-month period, and it blows your mind. Um, so, yeah, in terms of what it's like to be a CEO, it's great. It can be, uh, it, there are downsides, um, but I do think the upsides far outweigh the down. And you've talked briefly there about, obviously, CEOs get, get rewarded for the, the success of the company. When it comes to how money plays a role in, in your life, do you have any positive money habits that you'd like to share or even some, some bad habits that, you, that, you've, that you've once had as well? Any learnings? Yeah, I, I am so boring. I, I've been the, I, as I told you, my investor journey started quite young. I was fortunate to discover Warren Buffett and watch a documentary and think I, you know, knew everything, right? I, I entered the market and started trading equities with my student loan um, in 2007. Um, I picked a few winners. And again, I thought I was Nostradamus. I couldn't lose. I started to get, I, I scrolled through Interactive Investor. I was getting involved in penny stocks and oil exploration, just gambling for a period. And then I lost a lot of money in that phase. Um, one of the things I did do at a young age, um, I diversified into property. The penny drop moment for me was very much about, uh, you know, property is a really sound investment. If you make a £20,000 investment on a £100,000 property, you're making a £100,000 investment, right? So that penny drop moment, you know, the appreciation um, is not on your £20,000, it's on your, it's on the total of the asset, right? So um, I, I, I was very enthused by property as a, I'm going to say a little more boring, but um, I, I made some good decisions young and that compounds over time. Um, and then I made all my like naive trader mistakes about not having good fundamentals, the psychological impact of investing, not being emotional, willing to take losses. One of the hardest things to do in investing is actually be willing to take a loss. The psychological barrier of you admitting that and cutting losses is really hard to do. So what I do now, my thesis is I, I make minimum of five-year bets. So when the market goes to chaos, like currently, uh, I'm unaffected. I don't have time to trade. So I simply make sort of my five-year positions and I back sectors and entrepreneurs. Um, I back asset classes that I believe in. And I personally don't trade too much just because uh, I think uh, yeah, I'd, I'd rather focus my energy in, in building something, which is slight story now. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> um, one quick—I well, I guess this is one of my final questions. Along the same themes, but you can answer this differently. What is one of the best investments you've ever made? And to give you a bit of context, that doesn't have to be a stock, but it could be maybe—I don't know—you you invested in tennis lessons, which made you know you met a person at the tennis club, which resulted in oh, okay, XYZ, I like this. so. I like you. You can have a bit of a think, but um, yeah, is there anything that sort of comes to mind? Yeah, great, really good question. I love that um, investments. Um, okay, I'm going to start with the easy ones. My best financial investment I ever made. Um, I invested in ASUS at three pound twenty five a share, which is really good if you look yeah. at the numbers. I, and I held that position for quite a while, so yeah, I did well out of that. Um, 
and I put what would have been at the time for me quite a, a, a sizable investment. Um, and that was a lot of luck, but it was kind of just momentum and sector and yeah. maybe it felt like a good choice. So it was a financial investment that was really, uh, really important. Some of my property investments have been great. If I was to go single thing, that's probably um, one of the things that I truly valued. Um, I invested a lot of time when I was younger in sports and my, I think your health is your first foundation. So I, I, I'd be ridiculous to not say the best investment I ever made has been on at a younger stage in life, really recognizing that health is my first foundation and making sure that I make good nutritional choices four times out of five and try and get enough sleep and do lots of sports and all of those things. Amazing. Good answer. Good answer. I like that. I like that. Well, Oliver, I think that's pretty much all the questions I've got for you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to see how Flight Story develops in the future. I'm also looking forward just to following following your journey as well. So, you know, I wish you the best of luck and um, yeah, I'm excited by, by, by your prospects. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. Really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. 